Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. I know that our listeners are jazzed. We are getting into the second week of a, I don't know, I don't even know how long, a four-week, a five-week series? Four or five. It's a big topic. We're covering <laughs> it's very big. Charles Manson this month and possibly more here on Ain't It Scary. And um, if you missed last week, you're going to be a little confused. Why is this guy so jacked up? <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to say it. He's yeah. a weird guy, and I think if you listen to last week's episode, uh, there's some context. So go oh, back. Oh, there's context. So yes. go back and and hear that. But uh, Caroline gave us the, um, I guess the dark origins of Charles Manson last week. Uh, his abusive. I'm going to say not as abusive at home as a lot of our our uh, uh, serial killers of note, mm-hmm. but. Um, his institutionalized childhood, let's say. Yes, all of the nature and nurture that came together into a cursed stew of madness. And this week, we're going surf rock. (laughs) Well, eventually, yes. And uh, we'll be joined by father of the pod, Paul Ferrante, after the break to talk about surf rock, but more importantly, how the Beach Boys um, and Charles Manson are weirdly intertwined. That's right. We are joining you from the family compound out on Long Island this week. (laughs) Um, So apologize if there's any change in the sound, but I think we're actually doing okay here. Yes, we are. It's good. (laughs) So, uh, Caroline, Charles Manson is, for the moment, I believe, out of institutions and uh, ready to try his fortunes in California. Is that where we left off? Yeah, he is about to go to Berkeley in California. So, at the beginning of his... Oh, I I thought you meant Berkeley Music College. No, no, just just the area. He'll, he'll, he'll show up at college, uh, but he's not going to attend. He does seem like the kind of guy who might be wandering a campus. Oh, he did a, a many a campus wander back in the 60s. So at the beginning of his journey into the heart of the hippie movement, Charles Manston was a stranger in a strange land. He had been in prison or some kind of custody for literally half his life. And he wasn't as hip to much of pop culture or even a lot of the social goings on as those who had not been incarcerated for much of the 60s. He knew the Beatles, and we we talked about that, and we're going to talk about that a lot more uh, probably next episode as well. Uh, And, you know, there were other artists, uh, musicians that were able to sort of trickle into his prison cell. So he had read like Dianetics, but Breakfast at Tiffany's had passed him by. He wasn't much of a Truman Capote kind of guy, (laughs) maybe as a subject. Um, he, He was still immersing himself in the thick of what real life was. And it was a surprise at first for Charlie, but it was a pleasant one. Men had long hair now, and they were wearing flowers in it, and women were wearing bell-bottom jeans and practicing free love. Everything that he had been taught was being turned on its head. So Charlie's like, I mean, I I haven't washed my hair in years. I'm going to fit right in here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was a far cry from the very conservative towns around Kentucky and the Midwest that had ostracized Charlie for his differences. So he was... He was very happy when he arrived there. Hey, I'm going to try wearing a dress again. This is cool. (laughs) He was not a fan of that. Now, if you're a listener from the U.S. and paid at least a little bit of attention in school, you know that the mid to late 60s was a time of deep 
unrest in this country. I mean, yeah, so different than usual, right? But this was a definite turning point in America's social and political culture. We had emerged from the post-war conservative 50s, ready to shake off the chains of conformity, and many in power or uh, in places of authority were not about that. Thus, the movement for peace and equality, the things the hippies were preaching, was a thoroughly youth-based movement. The first draft lottery from the for the Vietnam War would be held on December 1st, 1969, but in post-Kennedy assassination America, the writing probably looked like it was on the wall for many of these kids who would be the first drafted. They were the young and able-bodied, after all. Mm-hmm. The elders in power would be able to send them off to war, but avoid it themselves. And many young people responded negatively to that, uh, especially considering Vietnam was seen as a wholly different situation than the good war of World War II, where the bad guys were patently and obviously evil and they were easy to distinguish uh, uniforms and patches to show you that. I have, I still wonder why the Korean War didn't kick off a similar thing, but maybe it's because there wasn't televised, you I know. I think f- that had a big thing. Footage of yes. children dying and stuff? Yes, because the Vietnam War, we were finally, I mean, TV was in most households and people could see footage of kids being blown up pretty much on the news. And that was much different than anything they had experienced before. In fairness, Carrie, they usually napalmed the children to death. <sighs> Sorry, my apologies. So, yes, the Vietnam War was much more of a gray area than anything that we had really dealt with, and it was much more in the media um, in a visceral way. On top of all of this, there was serious racial unrest across the country. The Civil Rights Act had been passed in 1964, but that doesn't mean that there weren't plenty of jerks out there who felt they deserved more rights than black people just because they were white. So that was all mixed into the general cultural tension and would eventually play a major role in what Charlie Manson would decide to do with his cult down the road. Or say he decided to do, and more on that later. Influence them to do because of what he said to them. Yes. So... Berkeley, Berkeley, California became the hub of political protest for young people um, with a base at the colleges, UC Berkeley, um, places like that. When Charlie arrived on the campus in spring 1967, the buzz of revolution hung in the air. And there was also the presence of the Black Panthers, who seemed to have intimidated Charlie. Uh, He had encountered Black Muslim men in prison, and they were Definitely not to be messed with. And he knew that. Like Brother Muzan from The Wire with the little yes, bow tie yes. and everything? Uh, the Black Panthers reminded him of those men. But they these guys were out in, in the world. They were free and often very angry and armed. As Jeff Gwynn wrote in Manson, in Charlie's mind, quote, angry black men with guns meant that white people were going to die. From the moment when Charlie first encountered them in Berkeley, the Panthers impressed and scared him. And he wasn't the type to often get scared. I, are you sure? Sh- I, I feel like... He's shrimpy, but he's not frightened. But isn't, like, it, isn't all that, like, hey, too high stuff, a fe- isn't the insane game a fear response? Of course. Well... It's an intimidation tactic to intimidate people to back off. But I think it all sort of ended up in this weird cycle of what's real and what's not. Is hey. this me now? You know. Hey, you scared? Look, I peed on myself. I'm wet. <laughs> wow. <Wah. laughs> 
Another thing that impressed Charlie was the lack of conformity in Berkeley, something completely new to him after years of institutionalization and confinement in small, rigid towns. Here, finally, in a way, he fit right in. And not only that, he was somewhat exotic, too. He was a guy who had fought the man and been imprisoned and lived to tell about it. And he's just visually the picture of a man with an acoustic guitar and a bag of weed on a college campus. Yes. Charlie intended to parlay this notoriety into making money as a street musician, but every corner was already full of like-minded buskers. And he couldn't even really try to pimp Either because it was free love times, baby, and you didn't have to pay for sex anymore. You know, Carrie, I don't know how, but since last week I had forgotten about Charles Manson's uh, brief flirtation with the art of pimping. Yes, but, you know, he would always, he would take the things that he learned from the pimps in prison and in his own time to refine the kind of people he would add to his group. Remember and that his, was the most important part. Remember when his wife like divorced him because he wouldn't stop talking about pimping <laughs> during their conjugal visits? You know what? I can see that getting awkward. Yeah. So at this point, everyone's having sex. Everyone's having it with each other. And the only transaction involved was often an exchange of drugs. So it's not something that you can monetarily really get into. But it was this free love movement that soon brought Charlie to his solution. And this solution came in the guise of a young woman. I don't know why dealing drugs didn't... uh, 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 There were so many free drugs. People were just giving them... It was very much a barter system. Mm. And I'll get into it, but the main producer of Acid... um, Tim Leary? No, no. The the one in uh, San Francisco... um, Owsley. I'll, I'll talk about it, but he said that you can't, you couldn't sell his doses for more than two dollars a pop because he wanted as many people in the world to have it. So it wasn't necessarily lucrative either. You don't understand. This paper contains the people's insanity. <laughs> So 23-year-old Mary Brunner was originally from Wisconsin and worked at Cal Berkeley as an assistant librarian. And Charlie targeted her from a mile away. She was young, but more conservatively dressed than the other girls at Berkeley, which intrigued him. And most importantly, she was lonely. And Charlie could always tell when girls were lonely. Charlie initially introduced himself while she was walking her dog by fussing over the pet and then sang her some songs with his guitar. They talked for a long while, and eventually, when Mary found out Charlie had nowhere to stay, she invited him to crash with her for a few nights. And with Charlie, uh, they would ever be just a few nights. He's not a great guitarist, right? He's like banging out Purple Haze for her. I mean, that hasn't been written yet. He knows rudimentary chords, but everyone who talks about him, and and if you listen to his music, which we'll, we'll play a segment of at the end of the show, he's not doing anything special, you know? It's, it's very rudimentary. In 1991, he'd be uh, halfway getting through Wonderwall at a party. (laughs) I think that would be later in the 90s, but yes. Charlie was soon able to convince Mary to sleep with him, and that's when he really got his claws in. And that's, that's what he would do. He would meet these girls, he would talk to them, he would listen to them, and then he would immediately try to have sex with them. And that's a way that he would try to emotionally bind them to him. So Mary would work at the library, and he would leech off her paycheck and her kindness. Sometimes he would bring other girls back to the apartment, because free love, baby. 
Quote, Mary didn't like it, but Charlie would make her feel beautiful and important, and she didn't want to lose that by throwing him out. She gradually got used to sharing him. None of these other girls stayed around very long anyway. Casual sex was one thing, but most young women in Berkeley didn't plan to sublimate their own best interests to Charlie's. Mary, smart but lonely, was glad to do it. Uh, I don't want to get too far into this, mm. but I only ask because he seems like such a self-centered person. Mm-hmm. Do you think Charlie Manson was any good at sex? Oh, God. I, ugh. I don't want to think about it. Well, but if, like, if that's his way of emotionally binding you to him, like, is it an enjoyable experience? I don't think it was the act itself. I think it's the emotional manipulation that he would couch it all in. And I t- I'll talk later about how he did that, particularly with Susan Atkins when uh, he met her. But he made it part of a an entire act of manipulation. He's doing the whole Rasputin routine the whole time. Oh, God. <laughs> Certainly smelled like him, probably. He's got the Rasputin eyes. Charlie would cross the bridge for meetings with his parole officer, Roger Smith, in San Francisco, and so began to experience the area during the Summer of Love, as it would be called, in 1967, which was arguably the peak of the hippie movement, and that was also the very epicenter of it as well. The neighborhood of Haight-Ashbury was known as the hippie capital and drawn in. Charlie would begin spending his days there before returning to Berkeley and Mary's apartment each night. It still likes to think of itself as a hippie capital. Yeah, and I mean, I think it still does attract open-minded people. Yeah, I, I want... That, that's never changed. I once saw a guy in Haight-Ashbury who was sitting uh, on the sidewalk and he's wearing like a floral you know, a silk shirt. Mm. And he had a, a, he was holding a sign and the sign said, I'm not homeless. I'm not hungry. I just want to buy some weed. <laughs> I was like, yes. this, uh, I, lo- I appreciate your honesty, sir. I don't have any money. <laughs> I mean, you know, around the same time as this, it became a real gay Mecca. It still is because people were more open-minded and people were more able to be themselves in any way that would be. So, um, To quote the book, the master manipulator, Manson, could not have found a more perfect hunting ground than the hate. And that's H-A-I-G-H-T. Because, you know, summer of love in the hate is ironic. Um, But the hate was also the epicenter of hippie drug culture. And it was an expansive culture there during the summer of love. Of course, you had marijuana and hashish, but also... Lysergic acid diethylamide, a.k.a. LSD. Mm, I think I'll adjourn to another dimension and take some LSD. (laughs) Or acid. Ex-Harvard professor Timothy Leary, who Sean mentioned earlier, had begun to openly advocate LSD use in 1964, recommending the drug um, to help the world reach new imaginative heights thanks to its hallucinogenic properties. And he began distributing and uh, educating about it, um, mostly on, I think, the East Coast, if I'm not mistaken. And studies since, like, the 70s have shown it, actually, for, you know, in combination with therapy and stuff, really, uh, these things really help with uh, uh, depression, anxiety, and all kinds of mental health stuff, but then they in were In combination illegal. of Charlie, with Charlie Manson, it does not. Well, but then they were also made illegal, and no one could even yes. study these effects for right. decades and decades, till recently. In 1966, a young man named Augustus Osley Stanley had established a lab in the Bay Area to concoct and perfect his own variety of LSD. 
by October of that year, Owsley uh, LSD was all over the hate, even despite the state of California legislating that the use of LSD would now become a misdemeanor and sale of it would be a felony. That didn't really phase anyone in Haight-Ashbury. They just got more clever about distribution, which is what happens. And it was very easy to distribute. As I mentioned, it was no more than $2 pop. So, I mean, pocket change. And it's, I mean, one drop of liquid on a piece of paper. Right. So virtually everyone in the area engaged in what's called friendly dealing, trading their own little homegrown varieties of weed and hash, and experimenting with tuning in, turning on, and dropping out using acid. Of course, with all of this mind expansion going on, the area was about to experience a cultural explosion in the form of art. The music scene in Haight-Ashbury exploded with bands like The Grateful Dead and Big Brother and The Holding Company with Janis Joplin emerging from the San Francisco area. Paul McCartney had popped in soon before Charlie did and had announced to the world that the hippies there were colorful and fun and that he had enjoyed his experience in the hate, which made more people go. I think they're all right. You know, they're just having a good time down there. (laughs) Uh, So the Beatles were officially endorsing the hate and don't think that fact was lost on Charlie Manson when he first visited. Music was everywhere by the time Charlie Manson came to town, and that was seductive not only to him, but to the kinds of people he could best manipulate. Often, these were runaway teenagers, and most often, they were girls. Quote, So many defenseless teenage sheep naturally attracted both shepherds and wolves. You can't emphasize enough the innocence of most of these starry-eyed kids, recalled beat and hate survivor Glenn Todd. They were ripe to take advantage of if anybody wanted to. Throw out some talk about peace and love in Golden Gate Park, and you can sleep with a dozen naive little girls if that was your intent. And boy, howdy, was it Charlie's intent. But not only that, that would be just the beginning. Yeah, pimping ain't easy, but, uh, you know, it's hard to uh, bird in the hand. It's high. Mm, I, I, I'm disturbed by how well you're doing that little impression. I hope this doesn't become a thing at home. Oh, no, he's dancing now. Oh, no, he's doing the insane game. Charlie became fascinated with a local group that were called the Diggers, who would become his first inspiration on the outside. Last episode, we discussed the collection of inspirations Charlie found in his first decades of life, which provided the foundation of his belief system, or at the very least, how he communicated and used that system. These inspirations included the church and the Bible, L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, Dale Carnegie and his manual, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and of course, the entire concept of the Beatles' unbelievable fame. I love, finally, bringing together like pop corporate psychology and (laughs) UFO religion. Mm. In a way, yeah. No UFOs for Charlie, but you know, Beatles. To to eventually, well, but Dianetics is UFO religion. Yes, yes. To eventually get to, uh, you know, some good old-fashioned drug-fueled murder? Yes. But at this point, the diggers would show Charlie what he would do next and put him on the path that would eventually lead to the deaths of several innocent people. Who were the diggers? I feel, that's, that's not a group from, like, the English Civil War or something? Well, it actually, the name is based on an English activism group from, like, the 1800s. But 
the diggers in San Francisco were a radical community action group of activists and street theater actors that operated primarily in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood from 66 to 68. They were self-described community anarchists that deftly blended their desire for freedom with community consciousness, and they had a central tenet of being authentic, striving to create a society free from the dictates of money and capitalism. Wait, so they were Tyler Durden. Is this Project Mayhem? (laughs) Uh, A little more peace-loving than Tyler Durden, I think. The Diggers published many broadsides and memoranda outlining their beliefs and pamphlets to spread their poetry, psychedelic art, and essays. Popular phrases nowadays, like do your own thing and today's the first day of the rest of your life, originated from the so-called Digger Papers. And were promptly co-opted by corporations and uh, I'm pretty uh, sure we saw both of those on posters at Dollar Tree today. Yeah. Something many members of the group would do daily is scrounge through supermarket dumpsters and restaurant castoffs to collect still edible food, turning the trash of capitalism into a tasty treasure for all of the street kids under their wings. In taking care of those who needed it most, they garnered respect from the locals, and Charlie was impressed by this respect. It was something he'd never gotten in his life from his family nor his fellow outcast boys and criminals. Charlie wouldn't join the diggers, no. He was never a joiner, never one to follow, and certainly not for the magnanimous reason of helping better others' situations rather than his own. But he did learn from them, and he decided to attract his own respect, reinventing himself as a new hate guru to attract his own flock of followers and devotees. What you want? (laughs) Baby, I got it. What you need, you know Charlie's got it. I don't think so. I don't think so. He started by drifting from one street preacher to the next for days on end, memorizing their best bits and putting together his own sermon of sorts. Yeah, something with a dream. I have a dream? No, no, no. (laughs) Well, like someone trying to become a stand-up comic, he began by poaching from other more experienced speakers to hone his own routine. A Carlos Mencia of of Haight-Ashbury. Yes. Woof. Frightening. Uh, It was easy to spend plenty of time on this research while mooching off of Mary Brunner. Quote, Mary understood that it was none of her business what Charlie did during the day while she was at work. Her obligation was to pay the rent, cook for him, clean his clothes, make love whenever he felt like it, and tolerate any other girls he brought home. And as Charlie began to preach his way around the hate, there were suddenly a lot of them. I'm going to insist on some scare quotes around uh, make love. Oh, yes. Those are, yes. As recounted in Manson, the street philosophy Charlie initially spouted was a hybrid cobbled together from Beatles song lyrics, biblical passages, Scientology, and the Dale Carnegie technique of presenting everything dramatically. Often, Charlie would sing and play guitar, too. He espoused the virtues of giving up everything, possessions, individuality, and ego, just like in Thessalonians. But give it up to me, man. (laughs) Claiming that the more surrendered uh, would result in more gain. No inhibitions, free love, death is just life, man. It wasn't original. Charlie didn't get original in his teachings. No, Jesus did this in like the year 30. <laughs> he, he took a spin on it when he got out into the desert. Uh, even then he was still derivative. But like many things, it's not about the size of the boat, but the motion of the ocean. 
And Charlie had a weird charisma about him, a way of orating that apparently drew people in. And certainly the entire scene's vibe and plentiful drug use contributed to people's perceptions of his preaching. Do you see something of Rasputin in him? I mean, he's he's attractive, but he's not like attractive. You know what I mean? He's, he's, charismatic. He, he's charismatic, but he's not likable necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think their vibe is different, you know. I don't think Rasputin was like, meh, 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 meh. He was, I don't know, he's grabbing at people a lot. Well, yeah. Hmm. I don't know, maybe. It's interesting. So, one, on one of his long weekends driving up and down the California coast, Charlie came across 18-year-old Lynette Fromm crying on a Venice beach. She had just left home after a fight with her domineering father, and everything about her ticked off the boxes Charlie had in his mind for the perfect follower. Cracked but not broken, desperate for love and guidance, daddy issues. Squeaky voice. <laughs> oh yeah, we'll get to squeaky. Uh, it was the same checklist he'd utilized as a fledgling pimp. In recruiting Lynette, he started a streak of success that he never achieved he had never achieved during his pimping days. Lynette had a history of emotional problems and multiple suicide attempts under her belt and used sex and drugs to deal with her home life. Charlie told her that he was called the gardener because he tended to all the flower children back in the hate. Such like, ugh. <laughs> Barfola. It's, it's like the James Taylor song, Handyman. <laughs> Uh, Lynette poured all of her frustrations and fears out to him and Charlie listened. And that was important. A lot of the people he would end up recruiting felt like no one listened to them, paid attention, cared. Charlie did, or at least he was very, very good at faking it. So kind of like the people who followed Marshall Applewhite or L. Ron Hubbard or Joseph Certainly Smith. L. Ron Hubbard. Marshall Apple. Hmm. He's an interesting case. We'll have to study him further later he may or may not have been as malicious but I, i'm just saying the profile right. of the followers he might have marshall Applewhite. for um anyone listening who doesn't recognize the name was the leader of heaven's gate which was a ufo cult that committed mass suicide in the 90s um but i feel like he had some genuine beliefs there he did get castrated and i feel like you don't do that to like prove a point yeah but he uh, we could we, we will do an, a whole probably oh. not one episode but several yes, on it's um, going to require that heaven's gate but I, I do think he hated his own sexuality so there's yes, a piece there too for sure and that was imposed on people but who knows how much he was conscious of that by that point but anyway this is charlie manson and he's he's got different. no problems with his sexuality <laughs> he's different uh, Charlie invited Lynette to come back with him to San Francisco and after her some hesitation she did Soon, her and Charlie and Mary were kind of a free love thruple, and they moved into an apartment in The Hate. Charlie was ready to add some more members to their group, and he had some ideas for who to pick. Just to live in this time when you could l look, talk, and think like Charles Manson and have two girlfriends. You jealous? I'm not saying I want it for me now, but as a younger, <laughs> as a younger man, I, I couldn't have lived in this time. Oh, brother... Oh, brother. A former minister named... I just spent so much time without one girlfriend. <laughs> Listen, don't blame me. A former minister named Dean Morehouse had once uh, picked Charlie up 
hitchhiking and introduced Charlie to his wife and teenage daughter, Ruth Ann. Dean told Charlie that he could have the family's broken down piano if he came to get it. So Charlie returned and picked up the piano, but instead of bringing it back, he went over a few blocks and traded it to a local for an old Volkswagen minibus. Now, Charlie had transportation for a group, and he also had Ruth Ann Morehouse, who ran off with him at this point. Is that three, or does she think she's one? I don't know what she was thinking. She's a teenager. She's a kid at this point. Uh, Mrs. Morehouse sent the police after Charlie, who was charged with interfering with the questioning of a suspected runaway juvenile, which is apparently a specific law. Very specific. I think they just say human (laughs) trafficking now. He received a 30-day suspended sentence and an extra three years added to his probation. Ruth Ann, following Charlie's orders, married a guy named Edward and, through the union, obtained legal emancipation from her parents, which is what he had advised. And Ruth Ann just then bided her time until Charlie would inevitably send for her. Next, Charlie met 19-year-old Patricia Patricia Krenwinkel through an old acquaintance of his from prison. Krenwinkel? Mm Mm-hmm. Pat had a chaotic home life and was currently living with a half-sister and nephew, the former of which Pat would claim was on drugs. I'm seeing a connection. Exactly. And because... And so was Charlie. He pounced. During three days with Pat, he focused all of his attention to her, having sex and tell her, telling her she was beautiful, which no man had before because she, she, you know, she was pretty average looking. On the third day, he, <laughs> he rose again. Uh, he asked Pat to leave town with him, and she did. Now it was Charlie, Pat, Lynette, and Mary tooling around California in the VW minibus. Even better, Pat had a Chevron credit card that her father paid off each month, and Charlie immediately commandeered it, so the group no longer had to worry about paying for uh, for gas. Pat, for her part, would write to her father that summer that, quote, For the very first time in my life, I found contentment and inner peace. Wow. I mean, for now. Yeah. Big time. It was at this point that Charlie would see his mother, Kathleen, for the last time. He tracked her down to Washington, hoping to get some money from her to tide the group over, because Mary had quit her library job to travel with the uh, whole band. And when he found Kathleen, however, she denied his request, and Charlie stormed out of the house, never to speak to his mother again. Yeah, because she, like all people, is just a tool to suit his ends, and once Mm -hmm. she's not working anymore, she goes in the dumpster. Kids came and went from the Manson Brigade, but Mary, Lynette, and Pat always stuck around. Charlie made love to them and told them they were beautiful, and they in turn worked to surrender their egos as he directed in his nightly sermons. Continuing to insist on air quotes around any use of make love in this Charles Manson series. (laughs) Absolutely. Soon, Charlie promised he would get a record contract and become a star. Till then, it was a revolving door of group members, and Charlie would attempt to lure men into the group, a more difficult prospect, via the girls. He preached that sex was great, and any moral hang-ups regarding it were wrong. The first step uh, for him to basically get them to work as his personal sex workers, but here they would be trading their bodies in exchange for the men's loyalty to Charlie. 
He also forbade using birth control, saying it wasn't natural. So he is so he is pimping at this point. In but, a way, but yeah. not for money. Yes. But the women weren't, well, in his opinion, hot. And Mary had recently become pregnant with his baby. You know... That birth control that you were putting the putting the kibosh on could have prevented that. But he's not. He doesn't have a problem with that. He's happy, actually, um, that he's going to have another kid. Has he seen the first one? <laughs> well, he needed someone hot. I, I don't mean like the first one had had problems. With no, women. no. I just mean, has, has he, he seen, seen the, him? I, pff, no. <laughs> but he wanted attractive people and not pregnant to attract more men, and he found. Someone hot, in his opinion, um, his only follower poached directly from the hate. 20-year-old Susan Atkins was the most desperate girl Charlie had come across. She had a, a difficult past and a terrible, stressful home life that snowballed into dependencies on alcohol, drugs, and sex. Well, yeah, but she was hot. Well, she wanted attention, she wanted to be loved, and she exuded what some called an aggressive sexuality. And once escaping from her home and a series of abusive boyfriends, worked as a topless dancer. Her dancing attracted none other than Anton LaVey, the founder (laughs) of the Church of Satan and Satanism. He hired Susan to work as a topless female vampire at his witch's Sabbath club which was a dream job for her until she bottomed out once again on uh, excessive drug use and um, a raging case of gonorrhea. That uh, honestly, that all, except for the gonorrhea, that all sounds uh, great. I I wish, um, I I wish she had been able to stay at those heights instead of ending up with Charlie Manson. Yeah. Well, (laughs) considering, you know, certainly Susan would eventually resort to wandering the streets of the hate, trying to score drugs any way she could. Here, in the fall of 1967, Susan met Charlie at a, at a friend's house party. As he sang and strummed the song, The Shadow of Your Smile, Susan immediately became enraptured with Charlie, and he immediately knew a mark when he saw one. Is that a real song or a Charlie song? It's like apparently like a cheesy lounge act kind of song, but she was so into it. It's like he's singing Danke Shen. <laughs> yes. After after the song, they danced, they played records, they had sex, which was, again, Charlie's tried and true preliminary action in, in, in trying to bait any of these women. In his opinion, quote, and this is so gross, he knew that many girls had guilty sexual feelings about their fathers, so he brought that up before initial lovemaking. He told Susan that to break free of the bad experiences and inhibitions that were crushing her, she needed to imagine that she, she was making love to her father. When they were finished, Charlie promised Susan that he'd never let her fall. That was all it took. She swore she'd follow him anywhere. So, what I was saying before, he uses it as an entire manipulative act. Maybe the actual act itself is not good or satisfying, but as part of a whole emotional pantomime, it drew women in. And he's, I mean, he's consciously hyper aware and targeting women with daddy issues. Um, but he's right. also, he's also, it's, it's bizarre that he's making that explicit to them. Yes, but he's framing it in a way that's more of like a therapy sort of thing than anything else. And Susan became one of the most militant and devoted of Charlie's followers and would play a big part in the murders. So he clearly knew what he was doing in that respect. 
To make space for more followers, Charlie swapped the VW bus for an old yellow school bus that they gutted and filled with sleeping bags and cushions. They'd all often make trips to the free clinic to get a multitude of venereal diseases cleared up. But despite Charlie banging around with all of them, he never seemed to get sick. It only added to his followers' growing belief, one that he encouraged, that if Charlie wasn't entirely divine, he certainly was above human. Well, no, he wasn't not sick. He just wasn't going to the clinic. So he was just give it, re-giving them the diseases again. <laughs> Soon, the group added a college dropout named Bruce Davis to the crew, who was intent on becoming Charlie's second-in-command. And Charlie welcomed welcome him with open arms. Charlie was not welcomed with open arms by Dean Morehouse, who was furious when the aspiring cult leader showed back up at his house in a painted black school bus looking for the daughter that he'd previously practically kidnapped. Is this the same yellow school bus? And now we've... In, it, it's painted black, yes. First the, it was rainbow, then it was black. I thought he was a Beatles guy, not a Rolling Stones. Uh. <laughs> I don't know. Morehouse drove Charlie and the group away from the home, but after fuming about the whole situation for a couple more hours, easily tracked down the black school bus because it's a black school bus. It's, there's one <laughs> in California. Yes. And he came after Charlie with a shotgun, cornering him on the road and putting the gun to his head, telling him he would kill him. Quote, and then Charlie did something that seemed to the group to confirm his specialness, even his divinity. This crazy man was about to murder him, and Charlie wasn't afraid. Uh, there was only one crazy man on the bridge. <laughs> Let me be clear. Charlie smiled and said quietly, go ahead, shoot me. Which stopped Morehouse cold because that was the last thing anybody in that situation could be expected to say. Charlie gently put his hand on Morehouse's shoulder and talked about how love was so much better than anger, and what a relief it was when you gave up your individuality and became part of a real family. Morehouse put down the gun. Then Charlie dosed Morehouse with some acid, I think consensually, and everybody watched as the older man began having himself a fine trip. So wait. <laughs> so then they all stood there on the bridge for 40 minutes well no i think they in? probably went in the bus or something after a while morehouse wished everyone a pleasant goodbye and headed home charlie's followers were awestruck charlie would later say that he decided to move his followers to la at this time because the hate was becoming dangerous but the main reason he wanted to get this whole the main reason was that he wanted to get this whole becoming a megastar thing really on the road. I would have guessed it was because he wanted to separate all these young women from their families and friends. Oh, most of them had gone to California to do that. But yeah, it's just, you're going to a new place with them. You're establishing this new commune, this new home with them. They feel even more isolated and further away. And that's always part of cult tactics. And committed. Yes. Charlie did have somewhat of a strategy for becoming a star, albeit a tenuous one. His friend Phil Kaufman from prison told him that he had a friend at Universal named Gary Stromberg who might be interested in his music, and Charlie felt it was high time he paid Gary a call and audition for him, confident that would, it would be the first step along his guaranteed path of becoming bigger than the Beatles. Oh, what, guys, wait till you hear Charlie's song. <laughs> <laughs> 
In November 1967, his parole supervision was transferred from San Francisco to Los Angeles, and the burgeoning family were soon making their way to L.A. and realizing their dreams of stardom. I call it perfect shit-stain opus. <laughs> After the break, uh, my dad, Paul Ferrante, will join us for a discussion about Manson's, Manson's move to L.A. when the Manson family met the Wilson family, which made up the rock and roll group The Beach Boys, how Manson's dreams of stardom seemed within his grasp only to be dashed by those who could deliver those dreams, and how all of this would culminate on the doorstep of the infamous murders that would have that would finally make Charles Manson a household name and end the hippie era and end the hippie era with a gruesome, devastating bang. Join us after the break uh, when we will be with Father of the Pod Paul Ferrante. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Welcome back. When last we left you, uh, Charles Manson had just made the decision to go and pursue a career. He's already um, sort of got an entourage, right? So why not get the music career going to go along with it? He's headed to Los Angeles, along with uh, Squeaky From, soon to be Squeaky (laughs) From, and all the rest. Well, ostensibly she was Squeaky at the time, but... Just not, not with a capital S. Not with a capital S. She's soon to capitalize the S. And mm-hmm. um, so now we are joined by um, noted. Father. Uh, father of the pod. <laughs> well, father and author and father of the pod, as we call him around these parts, Paul Ferrante. Welcome to the show, Dad. Nice to be back with you guys again. It's been a while. And uh, I guess we're going to talk some Charlie Manson and some Beach Boys. <laughs> yes. So... Um, Dad, you were previously on two episodes of ours so far, I think, Gettysburg Ghosts and um, Hauntings at the Tower of London, and also just, you know, general spooky stories at the Tower of London. Um, so how how does the Beach Boys play into your particular expertise, would you say? Well, um, I've always been a Beach Boys fan uh, from uh, really the early 70s. Uh, I became a Beach Boys fan when I was in high school, and then subsequently, after getting all the albums and uh, reading up on them, um, seeing them, I guess over the years, something like 10 times in their various incarnations, mm. uh, I guess I'm, I'm, pretty, uh, I'm pretty well versed on the boys from the beach. Well, you... Even so, I mean, you named me after a Beach Boys song. That's right, Caroline No, which is the last cut on the famous Pet Sounds album. Uh, And the phrase I've heard most in my life. Yes, Caroline No. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, that was apropos. But yeah, definitely uh, a connection. 
Awesome. Well, we're going to start with Charlie arriving in LA, and he did get to see Gary Stromberg at Universal, and it was pretty easy for him. Because that would be unthinkable today. He just sort of walked in, name dropped, and got in there. And even then, it was all about who you knew. And Phil Kaufman, Charlie's old friend from prison, apparently had some cachet. Enough for Gary to be curious about this weird little guy that he was vouching for. So, because he respected Phil's opinion, and he decided to grant Charlie an audition. Charlie took one of his rare showers for the occasion, put on clean clothes, but still arrived barefoot for that extra hippie flavor. And the girls followed along as well. How many people are in this music studio? It's Char... Well, this isn't the studio yet. He's... I think he's... I got the impression he's auditioning at the office. So it's Charlie and the four girls, the main girls at this point. Bruce wasn't there for some reason. Are they singing backup? Are they dancing? Um... I think they sang some backup and then they would clap after he did anything and they were just sort of fawning devotion over him. Squeaky holding a tambourine or anything <laughs> like that? What's going on? Yeah, something like that. So, you know, apparently Gary thought that he had some potential, this Charlie Manson. And, um, he, you know, Charlie could see his dreams right there within arm's reach about to be realized and true to Charlie form, he screwed it up for himself almost immediately. The session was a disaster. Charlie hated the studio and the equipment, and he yelled at the engineers and the producers. Nothing from the session made Stromberg feel Charlie deserved a recording contract. You know what I'm trying to do here? This is the Sphinx, man. This is the Sphinx, and I'm the riddle. Where's the answer? What do you think about your son-in-law right now, Dad? Um... Strange. <laughs> Strange. Uh, I, I, I think he's maybe had too many Mai Tais here out on... Uh, oh, that, that weird duchess out on, out on Long Island, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Stromberg tactfully advised that maybe Charlie should work on his song some more, and then maybe sometime in the future, way in the future, we'll, we'll try this again. In the meantime, he consulted with Charlie about a film project he was looking into in which Christ would return to the modern world. And because he had sort of left Charlie on the hook, he was happy to help. And in one memorable moment, when a man checking out the group's bus asked Charlie why he needed such a vehicle if he was preaching about giving up all of his possessions, Charlie simply flipped him the keys and said, You can have it, man. And so the guy drove away. Um, he returned the bus after a few hours, but Charlie's point was made, and Stromberg was at least impressed by his charisma and, I guess, practicing what he preached. But the movie was canned by Universal, and Stromberg returned to the office with Charlie still hopeful that down the line, he would re-audition and get everything in proper motion. Was the plan for him to play Jesus? I don't think it was to play Jesus because I read that the movie concept was kind of controversial because Jesus was black in it. So I guess it was just like, what would you do in this situation? You know, like, like a technical advisor. So we, we're going to get into a couple of, you know, extra bits and bobs after this audition. Um, we'll come back around to it. But at this point, the group is growing 
Um, there are other major followers joining, including Sandy Good, Diane Lake, Nancy Pittman, and Ruthann Morehouse herself arrives. And the group members began to pick alternative names for themselves. So Susan became Sadie, Ruthann became Weesh, Pat became Katie, and so on. And Lynette would eventually become, rather infamously, Squeaky From. So, they're in Topanga Canyon at this point, and we'll, we'll come back around to how they decided to establish sort of a commune there. But it's 1968. That year, both Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy would be gunned down by assassins. They were symbols for the fight uh, for civil rights and a more equal America. The peace and love vibes of the 60s were starting to twist and change, and it was at this point that Charlie Manson would meet Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the band The Beach Boys. So, Dad, can you give some backstory on The Beach Boys? Like, what are they known for? What was their thing in the 60s? Well, The Beach Boys really were the ones that brought the California sound to the rest of the world. Uh, starting in the early 60s, 1962-ish, uh, Brian Wilson uh, from Hawthorne, California, and his two brothers, Carl and Dennis, joined by their cousin Mike Love and uh, high school buddy Alan Jardine. Uh, they formed the original Beach Boys. Um, there was another guy, David Marks, who... Uh, stood in for Al when Al went off briefly to dental school. Al returned. But it was much a, a family affair. They're, the Wilson's father, Murray, uh, who was kind of a... Bastard. You know, well, yeah, he was kind <laughs> of a, you know, Martinet-type uh, drill sergeant type of guy. Very hard on his boys. Bit of a Joe Jackson. Uh, yeah, maybe a bit of a Joe Jackson. Uh, but then again, uh, he had a son, uh, Brian, who by all accounts, you know, since then has been termed a musical genius, mm -hmm. uh, truly is. Um, and uh, these guys started off with a, a, a very, very simple concept, uh, you know, talking about the things that really were important to young people at the time, especially out on the West Coast. You got the beach, you got the surf, you got girls, you got cars, that's everything you need. Um, and um, it was Dennis Wilson, the middle brother, uh, the most rebellious of the three brothers, because uh, Murray did uh, run a tight ship. He was, uh, by all accounts, an, uh, abusive at times. Um, Dennis is the one who came up with the whole surfing idea because he was the only guy in the Beach Boys who actually surfed. And he went to his brother, Brian, who uh, was into writing songs and uh, was uh, really uh, a musical wizard. And he said to him, um, you know, maybe we should do a song uh, about surfing because the boys used to sing together at family gatherings. Um, it, was, it was really like a big deal for them at that time. And uh, they would harmonize. They were taught a lot of these harmonies by uh, their mother, Audrey, um, who was kind of a gentle soul and nurturing, whereas Murray was kind of the blowhard. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you got to get ahead. You got you to gotta work hard for everything you got. Don't let anybody screw you, et cetera, et cetera. But early on, even Murray saw that his, bro um, his son, Brian, was definitely talented. 
and that his sons could definitely go somewhere under his leadership. Right. And, and he was kind of a frustrated artist himself. He yeah. wanted to be a songwriter. He had written songs before. He had even had one, I think, recorded by Lawrence Welk's band, <laughs> which was kind of his claim to fame. Mm-hmm. But he was a frustrated artist. So really he... Stage dad. A stage dad who lived through his kids most prominently, Brian, uh, who unfortunately uh, of the three brothers was far and away the more, most sensitive. Uh, and... Um, and uh, he kind of bullied the the young boys into uh, stardom in right. in a way, yeah. Yeah. So you know, when we're talking about the California sound, um, they really popularized surf rock for the mainstream with songs like "Surf and Safari" and um, and "California Girls." Um, is you know is is part of that? You got some of their car songs, fun, 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 Barbara Ann, you know, they're, they're really this poppy, happy sounding group, you know, for the most part. And that's when they really hit their, you know, initial fame is with those surf songs. Yeah. Surf and, girls cars. Right. You can't go through the summer anywhere in, in America without hearing Beach Boys songs. It's, they're like anthems for the summer. Um, you know, songs about youth, having fun, uh, kind of an innocence to them. Yes. Uh, always kind of upbeat. Caroline was very upset when uh, uh, the Beach Boys' Endless Summer, uh, not so endless this year, uh, the uh, serious radio station went away, uh, I think in favor of Ed Sheeran now. Ugh. So it was only on for July. It makes no sense. Anyway. There are, <laughs> there are people on serious radio with a much smaller catalog with much less talent than, than the Beach Boys. That's for sure. Uh, the fact that they're considered just a seasonal thing is kind of a slap in the face, but that's, that's another story for another time. Well, but- that's the stereotype, you know, and certainly growing up, I was a big fan of the Beach Boys, and it wasn't cool to be, you know, not, not like the Beatles. Um, everyone stereotyped them as being the cars and surfing and girls band that just sang these little happy little ditties and there, there wasn't much substance there. But then there was in their art, you know, especially when they got to pet sounds. Right. By, uh, by 1964-65, Brian Wilson being the, uh, the songwriter that he was, much in the same way that Lennon McCartney saw that they had to get past their I want to hold your hand stuff if mm-hmm. they wanted to have a long career and improve as artists. You know, he started writing deeper stuff, stuff about other issues, you know, uh, outside of just the cars and the girls, etc. By 1966, he had written uh, what was then considered a, a masterpiece uh, although it wasn't a commercial huge success, which was Pet Sounds, but other people picked up on it, especially the Beatles. Uh, the Beatles heard Pet Sounds. Uh, they countered uh, with uh, uh, Revolver. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just it just it it led to them kind of almost one upping each other. And but then again, Brian Wilson was one person who was writing against a duo of uh, Lennon and McCartney. And, and he was, was severely mentally ill. Yeah, he, by that time he had he had uh, given up touring. Um, the pressures to get records out, the pressures from his father. Um, 
the pressures to keep the Beach Boys uh, as number one in the face of the British invasion became too much for him. He had a nervous breakdown. He was replaced on tour by uh, first Glenn Campbell, believe it or not, and then Bruce Johnston, who still tours with a, a faction of the Beach Boys today. Uh, Brian decided that he would stay in the studio. He would just write uh, for the band. And um, this is what led to Pet Sounds. And then later on, uh, his unfinished, which was supposed to be the great masterpiece of him, which was called Smile, which was never, uh, which was never published until much, much later, only really in the 2000s. So... Yeah, the, I, the the Beach Boys. By the time Charlie Manson rolled around um, <laughs> in uh, 1968, the Beach Boys were kind of considered, in a way, has-beens. They mm -hmm. had uh, they had peaked. Uh, surf music was no longer in. Uh, they, Brian was so enveloped in his mental illness and his drug use that he, he wasn't regularly contributing. Right, he had. So it's, it was like the artistic influence is gone. He had withdrawn. Uh, you know, the guys were still touring and playing their oldies on the road, uh, and then they were still making money, but they were nowhere the uh, the force that they were in the early sixties. This is we're looking at like just after Sunflower surfs up. No, Sunflower and Surf's Up were the early 70s. So yeah. we're talking 1968. Uh, they had a, a series. Uh, really, there were four albums in a row after uh, Pet Sounds that did not do well. Uh, there was Friends. There was Smiley Smile. There was 2020. Um, all, all, of these, all of these albums tanked. Yeah. None of them did well. You can find some good tracks on them, but you can find a, really, seriously, a lot of crap. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a Beach Boys fan. Um, but Brian had withdrawn uh, to a great extent and left the other guys to kind of their own devices. And that's why the stuff was, was so uneven. Now, you know, Dennis, Dennis, uh, as I said, was the middle child uh, he was not a musician in, in the sense that his brother Brian was. And, and, you know, Brian could play just about any instrument. He could hear a song and pretty much, you know, uh, you know, play it on the piano. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was, he was like a savant, you know. And Dennis was just like the rebellious, crazy kid in the family who was always getting in trouble. He was also the hottie of the group. He was also the one real beach boy. I mean, he, he had the good looks. He had the you know the the longish blonde hair. The girls loved him. He looked and, like a true California handsome surfer boy. Right, and he basically taught himself how to play the drums because someone had to. Because <laughs> someone had to to blend into the band and did a credible job. He was never going to be considered great at what he does. If you ever see footage of him playing the drums, it's just like he's attacking them, like he wants to yeah. kill them. Uh, the drums, that is, uh, but he was he was the the sex symbol of the group, <laughs> right. and he was very happy to be a Beach Boy. And by '68, even though they were kind of on hard times as far as their popularity, he was still very much the Beach Boy and loved the fame, the money, and everything else that went with it that came to him. More than anyone else, I think he really embodied the celebrity aspect of the Beach Boys because he really embraced it. He was one of those big guys seen around Hollywood. Now they have the um, 
the posse, so to speak, with Leonardo DiCaprio and, and Tobey Maguire. And Carrie's demurring because her family's in the room. It's the pussy. They call it the pussy posse. Yeah. Well, they, they call themselves that. But yes, my family's in the room. But um, yeah, the, they had this kind of group back in the day. These, these, all these famous young men kind of partying around, doing drugs and scoring chicks together. And he was still, at this time, which is spring of 1968, he's still on the Hollywood scene. Um, he's recognized as a celebrity, but much like the band, a bit of a, a, bit of a has-been. And I think, you know, it's very interesting the kinds of parallels that Dennis has to some of the people that Charlie preyed on, but mostly women, but he clearly had daddy issues. He had daddy issues. I and, mean, and the other thing is he, he really felt that in a way he didn't deserve the fame, the fortune that he had. Because um, he wasn't as artistic, he, especially, I mean, you compare yourself to a genius and what are you going to do? Yeah, you know? I mean, his brother's a genius. And so a lot of the Beach Boys were, uh, you know, uh, they were accused at times of riding Brian's, you know, coattails. And they did, because Brian Wilson was the Beach Boys. You don't have Brian Wilson with his composing, his arranging. I mean, he would he would arrange all of their wonderful choral parts because they had the most beautiful harmonies. He did everything in the studio. Um, they relied on him and, uh, you know, Dennis was, Dennis was there and, uh, <laughs> and Dennis was there and it's like, and Ringo was there and, and he, 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 ca he cashed in on it, right. but he did have some sense of guilt. Uh, as a result, uh, he was known as, uh, far beyond magnanimous. He used to give money away to people. He was a soft touch to everybody he came in contact with. He was generous to a fault. Like, to, that is the epitome of that phrase, is Dennis Wilson. And he also had somewhat of a self-destructive streak to him. I mean, he was always, he was the daredevil. He was always crashing his cars. He was always doing stuff that he wasn't supposed to do. Uh, he was he was on a, uh, uh, a financial tether from the uh, company that, uh, that controlled the Beach Boys' finances because he was a spendthrift. He, he threw money around like crazy. As soon as it came in, it went out. Yeah. Uh, he lived in a beautiful house at this time. He was separated uh, from his first wife. Um, he had a young son. He was living uh, on the end of Sunset Boulevard in a house that was formerly owned by a uh, uh, humorist Will Rogers, uh, but he was kind of, you know, w when they weren't on tour or making one of those, you know, hor horrific albums, uh, he was just kind of bumming around, you know, drinking. The celebrity drinking, representative of the band. Right, and being a celebrity. Yeah, and that's, and that's what played right into eventually the hands of uh, our friend Charlie Manson. Yes. Are they pretty well off um, the whole time financially? I mean, is touring keeping them, like, rich? Touring was keeping them in good shape. But again, he's spending a, a ton of money and often on other people or helping other people out, right? Right. Yeah, he was just throwing his money away, whereas some of the other boys uh, were, were definitely more intelligent and more frugal with their money. But um, Dennis loved the lifestyle, and so he was going to live it to the max. Because really, he's one of those guys that really you didn't think, he didn't think he was going to live to be an old guy. So he was going to, yeah. you know, get the gusto. Carpe diem. Yeah, so at this point, spring 1968, Dennis is 
cracked but not broken. He's kind of down and out, but he's still on the scene. He still has the money and the, the connections. He's ready to be pimped by Charlie. <laughs> well, he's got the daddy issues. Uh, there, He's about to release the album Friends. It's going to bomb. So that's going to play into how he feels throughout the rest of these months. So how did the family come to meet Dennis Wilson? Very simple. Uh, in those times, believe it or not, out there, uh, it was very common for people to hitchhike mm -hmm. all the time and for other people to pick them up all the time. Uh, Dennis was driving along one day and he came across these two girls who were hitchhiking. Well, it turned out that they were two of Charlie's girls. So he picked them up. He didn't know. He didn't that. know. I mean, he didn't know who Charlie was. Yeah. He didn't know about any of this stuff. But Dennis was a, uh, a a prolific woman chaser when he wasn't being chased by women himself. Um, he was including one of the, your sister, my aunt. What she, she loved him. Oh, my sister Carol. Oh yes. Didn't he make eyes at her at a concert once or something? So she says. <laughs> Listen, so, I, I say the same about Brandon Flowers. But, so, you know, she, so, so she says. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, he, he saw these two girls hitchhiking. He picked them up, brought them to his house. Uh, actually, believe it or not, gave them milk and cookies. Um, <laughs> he's an innocent boy. He's an innocent boy said to them, uh, well, listen, you know, you guys can hang around if you like. I got to have a recording session later. And, you know, he had people coming and going in his house all the time. I mean, it was yes. just like, it was like Grand Central Station. They came in, they went out. You know, at any one time, there could be a number of people staying at Dennis Wilson's house, you know, and it was like one big party, right. one long extended party. So he went. And he uh, went to his recording session. He came back late at night, and the girls were still there. Uh, however, it was not the girls who greeted him when he came back to his own house. It was this scruffy little guy who came out of the house, and uh, Dennis was, was kind of put off at the beginning, and he said to, famously said, uh, to Charlie Manson, uh, you know, who are you? Are you going to hurt me? And Charlie, believe it or not, fell to his knees and kissed Dennis's feet. I mean, he always did the unexpected thing. You got to give him that. Like, I'm not here to hurt you, brother. You know, I'm, I'm just here be because I love you. <laughs> oh, I can't even fix a pigeon with a rubber shoe, man. I, I, I'm lost without you, Dennis. And so he ended up telling Dennis that, like him, he was a musician. Um, and he was, you know, he was looking to get into the music industry. And uh, so this one encounter ended up being a months long stay for Charlie and his entire family who kind of moved themselves into Dennis's house, mm -hmm. freeloaded off him, ate all his food, took all his clothes, Crashed his Ferrari into mm -hmm. a mountain at one point. They did? Yeah, one of the guy, one of the family crashed his Ferrari. Dennis is loving this. It's hot girl summer. Yeah, and there oh. were girls every day whenever he wanted yes. them. That was the. I mean, that was part of part of the package. Is that hey, you here now? And that was all he needed to ever say. That's right. So Dennis, you know, Dennis was uh, enjoying it, and. Uh, Charlie kept telling him, you know, you know, I want to I want to get in the music biz and he would play songs for Dennis and he would sing for Dennis and Dennis 
Wilson basically fell under his spell yeah. and started thinking that Charlie, you know, he was hearing all Charlie's philosophies and stuff like that and saying, hey, you know, this, 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 guy, this guy's got a lot on the ball. So what Dennis did was he got a hold of a friend of his named uh, Greg Jacobson. Mm-hmm. Greg Jacobson uh, worked for another guy um, at Columbia Records whose name was Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher was also a friend of Dennis. Terry Melcher was the son of Doris Day, the famous actress from the 50s and 60s. And um, he was an executive at Columbia Records, and he had hired uh, Greg Jacobson to basically help hunt out uh, new acts, new talent to bring to Terry uh, to see if they could sign him for the label. And so Dennis introduced Charlie to Greg Jacobson, who came over and was like, oh, this seems like a fun deal. He started banging around. I think he he got together with, I mean, you know, as, as monogamously uh, they weren't, but he his favorite was Ruth Ann, right? right? So he liked going over and spending time with her. Right. So, I mean, uh, he, and, he, you know, he told Charlie, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to Terry Melcher about you. I'm going to, you know, help you get a recording contract. <clears throat> he thought Charlie was fascinating. He thought maybe even there was a, a chance for a documentary mm. about Charlie and his family. He thought they were all so fascinating. <laughs> well, so, I mean, obviously it's fascinating. We're doing a show about it, but living with them, I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, as time went on, Dennis and and uh, Greg uh, later did introduce him to Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher at the time was living in the house that would subsequently be owned by Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. So he was familiar with the house on uh, Cielo Drive where the murders took place later on. Um, and... Um, but Terry Melcher saw that Charlie was basically kind of a low or no talent guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he, he wasn't was, drawn in the way that Dennis and even Greg were. No, and he didn't. You know, he didn't buy all of Charlie's rap. He thought a lot of it was bullshit, um, and so he would politely put Charlie off. And the more he put Charlie off the more Charlie would go to Dennis and say, come on, you yeah. got to do this for me. You got to get me in there. And, um, and so it really became uh, quite a burden uh, for Dennis Wilson, even though he was enjoying everything about having Charlie as a house guest, they were also draining him of uh, his assets. They took his clothes. Uh, he had to cons- uh, constantly pay for medical bills for the girls. And who, for himself, because he kept on getting STDs. Right. And the girls were all, you know, you know, gonorrhea-ridden. They, mm. they had to keep taking them to... Uh, but never Charlie. <laughs> but oh. never Charlie. Um, had to keep taking them to a medical clinic, and et cetera, et cetera. And... Um, they, they, he gave them, or they took all of his gold records, his Beach Boys records, mm-hmm. and uh, by the end, uh, Dennis just wanted kind of like to distance himself, and so when his lease ran out on the house, he moved out without telling Charlie, <laughs> and then 
and then had the landlord evict them. He ghosted them. <laughs> he basically he basically did. Although Charlie, you know, he was afraid of Charlie right. as well. He 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 um, respected him. He thought he was really far out, that, man. Far out. He called him the wizard. So it, yes, and and I have to read this quote because he he talked about Charlie and his relationship with Charlie publicly which is a fascinating artifact when you consider what happens later. Uh, and Dennis, in an interview with Rave Magazine, he said, Fear is nothing but awareness. I was only frightened as a child because I did not understand fear. The dark, being lost, what was under the bed, it came from within. This is typical Charlie stuff. But then he went on to talk about his new friend, Charles Manson, <laughs> called him the wizard. And he said, he calls himself God and the devil. He sings, plays, writes poetry, and maybe another artist for Brother Records. Yeah, now he, now Dennis actually brought Charlie to the studios of Brother Records. And that was formed by the Beach Boys, yeah, yes? Yeah, to, to meet the other guys in the band. And they were, to say the least, not impressed. <laughs> they, no. you know, they, you know, he was, uh, he was, he was telling them, you know, he was telling the, the other guys, you know, this guy, Charlie's a genius. Well, no, he wasn't a genius. He wasn't that, even that good at guitar. <laughs> Dennis, uh, Dennis had a, a brother who was a genius, right. you know, and that was Brian. Uh, so they dismissed him. They didn't want him around. And uh, it became a sore spot between uh, the rest of the band and Dennis. I have, a, I have a serious question. I'm not making fun of Brian Wilson in any way, because I love his songs, and I, I, uh, I, I feel badly for, uh, for the hand he's been dealt. But um, is it possible that Dennis Wilson, not a musical genius, thinks, like has seen his, his quite mentally ill brother, who's a musical genius, and just thinks that since Charlie's crazy, he's probably really a, a musical genius also? Right, that, that to be genius is to be crazy. Right, but I mean, even Dennis could see that Charlie's actual work was, was horseshit. Well, so, mean, okay, so, so then how did, so he did an audition for Brother Records, it didn't, Charlie by himself it didn't really go down well I no I mean he he played stuff right there, but, but I mean you know it, it was, they didn't sign him no it was all, because there were other people involved but how and this is the, the the famous factoid how did the Beach Boys end up recording a song that was written by Charles Manson well what Dennis did I think as a as kind of a, a, a way to mollify him he said listen you know what we can do though you know, you have some good songs. Why don't we? Why don't I see if we can record one of your songs? Okay. Mm -hmm. And and you know and and he figured maybe that would satisfy Charlie at least for the time being. So maybe for the day. Charlie Charlie had this wacky song called "Cease to Exist," and um, so he gave it to Dennis, and he, on the condition that Dennis was not going to change anything in the song. Any word in the lyrics. Right, any word in the lyrics. And so it, it showed up later on an album called 2020, which was, which was not a great album. But the title had been changed uh, to uh, Never, Never Learn Not to Love, I believe. Yeah, real catchy. But and yeah, they could change the title, just not anything else. Well, they made the title make less sense than the Charlie Manson version. <laughs> so, you know, when Charlie finally heard it, he hit hit the ceiling because it was nothing like 
what he supposed that it would be. Mm-hmm. And if you put that on top of um, the fact that uh, he couldn't, uh, you know, Terry Melcher wouldn't give him the time of day, he just became more and more frustrated to the fact, uh, to the point where he uh, he really got mad at Dennis Wilson. And Dennis Wilson was very afraid of this guy because he knew what he was capable of. Uh, or at least he sensed what he was capable of. Mm -hmm. And then uh, threats came later on when Charlie uh, needed money uh, and uh, tried to contact Dennis Wilson to forward him uh, money, and Dennis said no or or kind of brushed him off. Uh, There were death threats involved. He said he was going to kill Dennis. He was going to kill Dennis's son. Uh, And Dennis Wilson... To the day he died in 1983, was afraid of Charlie Manson, of Charlie Manson's family. Uh, he was he refused to testify at the trial mm-hmm. uh, because he was afraid of what would happen to him. Uh, he, there's a book by David Leaf uh, called uh, "God Only Knows." The story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California myth. And Leaf talked to Wilson in, uh, I think, around 1977. And uh, Dennis Wilson wouldn't even talk about Charles Manson to other people because he was afraid of recriminations. And uh, Wilson said to uh, David Leaf, the question was asked of, of Dennis, do you know why Manson organized those murders? Uh, and he said, I know why Charles Manson did what he did. Someday I'll tell the world. I'll write a book and explain why he did it. And, um, he never got a chance to do that. I don't think, you know, that was the closest he ever got because in 1983, and this was a fide accident, Dennis, who had basically, uh, led a life of such excess uh, drinking, drugs, etc., cetera, uh, that he, uh, he accidentally drowned. Um, yeah, the ultimate irony for the beach boy. For the, the one true beach boy to die of a drowning. But, um, you know, the, his, his, um, his encounter with Charles Manson was something that haunted him the rest of his life. Uh, do you think if uh, he had written that book, Dennis would have argued that Manson was looking for Terry Melcher to get revenge for not giving him that record deal? Well, uh, by all accounts, and I'm probably getting ahead of you guys in in this, but by the time uh, the murders were committed, even though they were committed in the house where Terry Melcher used to live, uh, he knew, Manson knew that Melcher no longer lived there. But it was he, sending a message. They were sure. sending a message, but also because he was familiar with the property. He wanted to kill somebody in this area to cause this this kind of commotion, and he was familiar with the property because he had been there once before. So um, Greg Jacobson uh, ended up testifying, I think, in the trial. Uh, Terry Melcher didn't want to have anything to do with it, and Dennis Wilson avoided it like the plague. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so we're we're spending a lot of time talking about Dennis and this relationship because this is a real turning point. I mean, Char- Charlie Manson's life is full of these turning points where you can go up, 
there it is. Up oh, there it is. He's he's there. He's the monster now. But I think after the failed audition initially, and then he he, it's it probably seems like God sent Dennis Wilson to just stumble into his lap, and Dennis is the nicest guy and has him live at the house, and everything's coming up, Charlie. And he's a he's a musician. He has his own record label with his brothers. You know, this is it. Or if not, it's going to be Terry Melcher. And, and, you know, and that final series of disappointments, I think, truly just broke any sense Charlie had of being able to integrate into society at all. Yeah. If he couldn't do it as a star, he he was going to tear society apart. Right, and you know Dennis was lucky, and, and you know he he said famously to uh, District Attorney uh, Vince Bugliosi, who who's the one who prosecuted uh, the Manson case, uh, even though he would not testify in the trial, he said to Bugliosi, you know, privately, "I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I got off only losing my money." Yeah. So they, you know, they drained him of an estimated hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and this is in 1968, 69, $100,000, yeah. all of his possessions, but he- He is, got away with his life. He got away with his life. Yeah. So frustration and a major blow for uh, for Charlie there, but only because he's unwilling to work at this or any other thing in his life. Well, that's the thing. It's one of those situations where you feel like the odds are all stacked against you, but you're not looking at what you're doing to contribute to it. Dennis Dennis was the nicest, most generous man. Uh, misguided, yes. In need of love and, you know, support, yes. But you couldn't have stumbled into a better person to have a connection with uh, than Dennis Wilson if you're trying to get into the music industry and trying to crash at someone's house. I mean, you know, no... If you screw that up, it's on you. Yeah, no Reagan I, Carrie. But uh, <laughs> if if you are really frustrated with the, what the world has given you and you've never put in a day of work at anything, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe try that once before you do the murders. Right. And did Charlie Manson ever have a chance? Probably not. But he certainly had a chance to not become a cult leader and direct well, arguably direct people to commit a bunch of murders. And then it's, uh, you know, it's not ironic because you saw this coming. Uh, when the Beach Boys option dried up, he turned back to his original, uh, you know, his original profits, if, if you will, uh, being the Beatles, because then in 1969, you have the White Album. Right. And that took his musical fantasy in a whole different direction exactly oh that's interesting did you say one of these girls had named herself sadie before the white album came out yes and we'll get into that but that was too maybe not too charlie maybe he didn't actually believe it but for what he said this was proof that the beatles knew about them and were talking to them because they wrote a song about sadie you know and she is sexy yeah, but, but none of the rest of us. <laughs> well, we'll get into that. But um, let's play a little clip of the Beach Boys version of Cease to Exist, Never Learn Not to Love, and just get a sense of the complete weirdness that the late 60s was, that these two paths crossed 
and resulted in this sort of musical testament to insanity. <laughs> and you will notice that Dennis does sing the lead on he this. He does sing the lead. Yeah, honestly, uh, I think like One Republic could release that this year and no one would blink an eye. <laughs> one Republic? Well, you'll notice it, you, you get the Beach Boys harmonies. Definitely. It's definitely Beach Boyish. It's certainly prettier than Scooby-Doo-Bobby-Doo-Bobby-Doo-Ba. Yeah, at, but, and you'll, but you will, you'll hear these little snippets, all these Charlie-isms. Yeah, surrender that, to your lover. It's, it's giving up your sense of self. This and, is a lot of stuff that, you know, he would say to Dennis Wilson, you know, and, you know, and this was all part of his rap. And it makes it into a Beach Boy song that sounds very Beach Boyish, the way it, you know, the way it's produced. Uh, however, by, by changing a lot of it, you know, that really set Charlie off because Dennis, you know, basically just kind of glommed it off him and uh, Charlie never saw a dime yeah. from, from any of this. Yeah, so that might have been helpful. Um, I haven't heard that before. That did sound more Beach Boysy than I was expecting. Uh, I wish I could hear the, like, what Charles Manson wanted it to sound like. Oh, we will. During our news segment, because we're not doing news this week because we're on vacation. So you're going to listen to some Charlie Manson music. Oh, my God. And if anyone copyright strikes us, then, I don't know, look at yourself. Look at your choices. You're getting mad that people are playing Charles Manson music. Yeah, what are you, protecting Charlie's profits? Screw you. We're playing the whole thing. Um, All right. Well, that's something to look forward to. Then I guess for now, um, all there is to do is uh, thank Father of the Pod, Paul Ferrante, uh, for being with us. you can uh, listen to more of Dad on the show on our Gettysburg Ghosts and Tower of London episodes. And you can also check out his books. He's got the T.J. Jackson Mysteries on Amazon. His newest, The Kid from Dodgertown, is also on Amazon. And um, go to paulferranteauthor.com for all of his news and links and all that. And thank you so much for coming, Dad. Well, it's always fun to talk about the Beach Boys, you know, along with the Beatles, uh, two of my greatest musical influences and stuff I still listen to today. Um, give give us a plug for uh, the kid from Dodger Town. Will you tell the tell the listener what what it's about? And um, uh, well, they already know where they can find it. Tell them what it's about. Well, it, it's a part fantasy, part history, a little bit Field of Dreams, a little bit uh, Brooklyn Dodgers baseball history. Uh, very entertaining story, I think, with a with a real message. Also, a heavy civil rights theme, which uh, talks about Dodger Town, a, a place that was created in the South uh, in the 1940s for the Brooklyn Dodgers, which was a totally integrated team to live, uh, work, uh, train together in the middle of a, 
a very segregated uh, Florida, and uh, I'm very proud of it. Uh, I was fortunate to be uh, asked to speak at the Baseball Hall of Fame a couple of weeks ago. Carrie came uh, with me and uh, my wife to uh, do the kind of technical stuff, <laughs> and um, that was that was a great honor. It's a it's a fine book, I think. Uh, it's got a lot of great messages, um, so uh, it's on Amazon, and I hope you check it out. The Thank kid from Dodger Town. Thanks so much, Dad. Um, so yeah, so the Beach Boys connection—it's uh, something that has always been on my mind when it comes to this case because I'm a big fan of the band, and it's it's interesting that something so stereotypically innocent and good and bright and bubbly as Beach Boys music is stereotypically could be connected to the the darkest and most depraved acts possible. And that dichotomy is very interesting. Yeah. And it's just so, um, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. It's all bizarre. And the whole, I think the, maybe the most interesting angle of this story is how much it ties into the culture of the sixties as a whole. Yeah. You know, we can, I, I'd love to talk later in this series about how much did this podcast, how much did this podcast, how much did this murder <laughs> have to do with um, people's attitudes to this day on things oh. like LSD and hippies in general? So much. And m- much of the reason that I find this case so interesting and why I wanted to discuss it in depth in this way is because when you talk about Charles Manson, when you talk about the Manson family murders, you're talking about the 60s and the good and the bad i mean obviously the murders are bad and he's bad but his music's pretty bad too but it's also intertwined with the summer of love it's intertwined with i mean listen you could think what you want about free love but people being more equal being more open with each other supporting peace supporting things like that you know those are things that i believe in i think those are pretty good things um, the music is incredible, and the art is incredible, but it's all wrapped up in this darkness. And, you know, you you get to a peak of this innocence and these, these good vibes and the be-ins and stuff in, in the 60s. But at the same time, it's it's running counter to assassinations and protests and all that stuff. Oh, he's back. One last thing I want to mention. As (laughs) someone who lived through this. Yes, well, that's an invaluable perspective. Right. I mean, I was only maybe like in the eighth grade at the time, but... Oh, I had a lot of opinions about George W. Bush in eighth grade, so I don't think that'll stop you. Yeah, well, you know, that's small potatoes next (laughs) to this stuff. Um, But, um, you know, those couple of years, you know, Robert Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King, the Vietnam War, it, it, it was it was Looney Tunes in this country. It was really, really crazy. And when this thing hit, uh, it really served to justify for all of yes. those people who hated the youth movement from the very beginning and the long hairs and the hippies and all that. It, you see? You they see? Were this, they were the epitome of the hippies are going to come and they're going to do bad things right and and in a way it kind of brought the whole hippie era to a screeching halt um and i don't know if we've ever really recovered no i i i think that uh the 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 manson murders 
uh, in their time, in their time, are, are, are a real key event. Uh, and I'm glad you're doing it because it's something that really needs to be looked into as a part of what was going on in this country. And it's a six degrees of separation, not only from these big names and these big artistic things, but also all of these humongous events, you know, the summer of love, some of these things are directly caused by the JFK assassination. Then there's the Vietnam War. And like so many things are just intertwined with the story. And it's a real, you see turning points in history. And this, this whole situation is a real turning point. So yeah, next week, we're going to follow the soon to be christened family to a semi abandoned movie set called Spawn Ranch, where some of the biggest names in the Manson family murders case will be introduced. And this is where Charlie Manson will first convince his followers of a coming apocalyptic race war dubbed Helter Skelter, that would push them to committing horrific acts of violence and murder. Yep, no one more into white pride than the Beatles, so of course they would be the ones <laughs> providing the messaging. The White Album, oh God. And um, the whole situation would lead to one of the most infamous criminal acts and then trials in American history, and the cementing of Charlie Manson in that very history as one of the most evil men who ever called the country his home. So we'll be back next week. Um, this might end up being a, a five-parter because I thought next week we would get to the whole string of murders, <laughs> actually. But there's just so much to this story. And there's more to even talk about with Terry Melcher and, and some of the pe- like. I mean, you got you had Anton LaVey just randomly pop up. Like, uh, there's so many names that you're like, oh, he knew this guy, you know, and this story is just attached to all of that. And I think it also influences culture at the time. And then in response to this, so many of these people knew Charlie Manson or knew someone who knew him and how they react is very interesting and how that influenced the rest of pop culture to today. I mean, you can chart it and it's, it's a crazy string of events. All because of one incompetent pimp. It's hard out here for a pimp. Hey, somebody. <laughs> Got a brain full of squirrels in a hive full of gasoline. I I don't like how easy you're coming up with these things. <laughs> Zip. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast Who Killed. I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic. And now each week, I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. No news this week because I'm on vacation and I'm afraid to look at it. So here's a taste of the original version of Cease to Exist as recorded by Charlie Manson himself. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. You have? Pretty girl. Pretty, pretty girl. Cease to exist. 
Just come and say you love me Give up your work Come on, you can't be I'm your kind Oh, your kind I can see Walk on, walk on I love you, pretty girl My life is yours And you can have my world Never had a lesson I ever learned But I know We all get our turn I love you Never learn not to love you Submission is a gift Gone, give it to your brother Love and understanding Is for one another I'm your kind I'm your kind I'm your brother I never had a lesson I ever learned But I know we all Get our turn And I love you Never learn not to love you Never learn not to love you Never learn not to love you Uh, this is going to sound weird. I think I liked that better than the Beach Boys version. Oh, shut up. That was, it was, it was, I was feeling it. It was, it was funky. It was, it was a, a kind of spare arrangement. It was creepy and evil. Bluesy. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can find Father of the Pod Fall fall <gasps> oh no <gasps> sir william campbell shears <laughs> you can find father of the pod paul ferrante on his website www.paulferranteauthor.com and uh you can find all of his great books on amazon um and i'm sure elsewhere if you don't want to support jeff bezos the baseball hall of fame for the new yes one. you can buy hard copies at the baseball hall of fame um yeah, go check him out. Follow him. He he writes blogs on his website, which is just so so cute. I love that he blogs. Um, we'll give him another five years. He'll be on Tumblr. <laughs> yes. Go buy his books. And um, yeah, thanks, Dad, for joining us. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Now looking for a Jack White cover of that Charles Manson song. But until we get that, special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Aussie, Sean Downs, Ryan, Enrique, Derek, and Ira. Um, you know, he'd be wearing like a little weird top hat or something when he did it, but I think Jack White would do a nice job with that song. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Updates are seldom. He has two children. <laughs> 
Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Show created by Sean and Carrie McKay. Nope, we already did that. Which is Bark Bark. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.